Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Peter Kaminsky, well-known author. Uh, he's written books about food and cooking, including a book called Pig Perfect, Encounters with Remarkable Swine, another book called Seven Fires, and he has a uh, book forthcoming called Culinary Intelligence that I think will be extremely interesting. So, Peter, welcome. Great to be here. Glad to have you here. So you've written about food for many years, written about it for all kinds of publications, including New York Magazine and the New York Times and lots of other things. I'd like to talk about what sort of place we've come to with food, like what, how, what the modern food environment is like, and how you think it might change, how you think it might be changed to get us back to some basic values, I guess you could say. But I know you've talked about the point that uh, the modern food environment is basically a lots of different manipulated combinations of sugar, fat, and salt. And this, of course, creates all sorts of health and other kinds of social problems. But what, what's just your overall impression of what the modern food environment looks like at the moment? You mean in America yeah, or in globally? America. <clears throat> well, there's, there's sugar, salt, and fat are necessary. And uh, one of the reasons uh, it's, it's easy to sell this to us is uh, because they are necessary. We love them. That's, that's how we evolved. But it, it's not all that's necessary uh, in order to fully enjoy, enjoy food. Uh, and uh, I think what industry has discovered, if you, if you create an environment, you can create products that only satisfies those uh, three hungers, uh, uh, then people will look will naturally default to that uh, in every part of the menu, whether it's the barbecue sauce that goes on roasted meat, or it's the salad dressing that goops up your your lettuce, doesn't allow you to taste it, or it's the breakfast cereal, or it's the uh, is it a called called a home meal replacement? I don't know what what it's called. The so called health bars mm-hmm. that are chewy, chocolatey, fudgy. Indulgenty, uh, uh, supposedly, I think our default is to only seek that out of food, and that's like only seeking music out of three notes of the scale, you know, or only painting with uh, with t- with two colors. I think one of the great pleasures of food. Anyone who's ever eaten a great meal, anyone who's ever eaten a great peach or a great tomato, knows that there's levels of complexity and depth. That just delight the palate and uh, and the body and the and the nose, um, that 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 you don't get when you just cover things up with sweet, salt, and fat. Uh, in their place, they're great. So you're talking about deriving exquisite pleasure from simple things, like a peach or a piece of meat uncomplicated by some sauce. Yeah, I mean, well, then then you need to. It sounds simple, but how simple are those foods? Right. I mean, they're, every one of those things is the result of uh, uh, of ages and ages of evolution and uh, millions and thousands uh, of compounds that interact. So you say simply a peach as if that, you know, I'm not saying that you do. One does as if that was just one simple flavor. But you bite into a peach, you get the sweetness, you get the acid, you get a little hint of vanilla, you get some honey tones. I mean, all those, 
even in extremis wine descriptors don't begin to approach how complex even the simplest foods are. So I guess we were talking about this before. I'm sorry, starting to deal or think in terms of what I would call Occam's uh, taste razor or food, food razor, that food should be no more complicated than it needs to be in order to deliver maximum satisfaction. And what, where that inevitably leads you to is really good whole ingredients, harvested at their peak, uh, you know, fed the right things if they're animals, um, uh, are, are certainly the, uh, the inescapable first step you need to take in, in really enjoying food and deriving some health from it. So if people have become accustomed to various combinations of sugar, fat, and salt, and all these artificial ingredients added to foods, you could make the case that they're basically just disguising what is otherwise bland taste in food that's been engineered in bizarre ways, and that people need to get back to what's simple, the, the beauty in whole foods. How can one do that? And how can we get to the point where people can begin to appreciate let's say, the quality of food over its quantity or its color or its shape or things like that? Well, I think there really are two aspects to, to, to that issue. One is how can you, how can I, how can my daughter, you know, how can our friends <clears throat> eat, eat better and derive more pleasure from it? And then the other is a question of public policy. I think if you don't have any skin in the game, so to speak, you're not going to be that interested in public policy. Uh, there's, and, and in fact, although I support sustainability and local and organic and all those things, I sometimes find uh, that, that people use, uh, you know, embrace that as a way uh, to think they're doing something good about food and not really dealing with it in their own life about what's on my plate and what am I going to eat tonight. I think you need to think about all those things. And uh, as, as we were saying, I don't know if it was in this uh, segment or you and I have talked about it uh, you know, uh, earlier, Pe people love stories and people love being attached to things. And unless people have an emotional attachment, and I, there's you know, two things we get really attached to, sex and food. I mean, that's what the species needs. Unless they have that attachment, I think everything else becomes a little bit abstract. Long-winded way of saying you got to eat better food. If I give you, I have no question in my mind, if I give you a piece of, piece of aged grass-fed beef and some feedlot, you know, corn-fed animal and ask you to taste them side by side, you will say the grass-fed beef has more flavor. I have to give you a tender piece like a ribeye because that's what real animals, you know, that's where, that's where they have some succulents to them. Uh, so I, I think it's a question of people being exposed to better food. And that, that, then that begs the question, well, how do you do that? Um, you know, it's a thing to, to be approached on many levels. I think what we've seen in America, in a, in a, while the rest of the world has gone through that the so-called, or is undergoing the so-called nu uh, nutrition transition, uh, eating uh, a lot of high-calorie, high-sugar uh, processed food. Something else has been happening in America uh, over the last, certainly the years I've been writing. It started with chefs 
dissatisfied with the product, because chefs know you can't make good out of bad, going to local producers. And I think what happened as a result of that is anyone who's ever grown tomatoes or zucchini knows, once you start growing stuff, when it comes in, you got a lot of it, and you're going to have more than a chef's going to be able to handle. And that has something to do with contributing to the rise of green markets. And on the other hand, there was a public there was the clientele of these better restaurants, Alice's, you know, I mean, all over America, who were looking for better ingredients to make at home. So we saw the growth of the farmer's markets and the green markets. And, you know, I think that's been a, a very positive thing. I once thought that was, a, 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 you know, a bicoastal thing, but I have seen it everywhere in America. I've seen it in Des Moines. I've seen it in Bozeman, Montana. I, you know, people want the good stuff. So you're talking about sort of a cultural change happening at the grassroots and that the, the opinion of some parts of the world of opinion leaders, chefs in particular, who are wanting to tell their, their customers in the restaurants about the story of the food. They want to buy locally and things like that. And then some people are adopting these, these values themselves. That's all for the good. The question, uh, one question I have for you, is this, a, is this a place where you see government having a role in promoting this process, facilitating it, speeding it up. For example, could nutrition changes in schools help create a different set of values that kids could learn? Absolutely. I mean, one place I was going to go, and then we can talk policy, is, you know, the green markets have been great, but their, their growth is limited. We'll end up all having Macintoshes and Volvos and talking to each other. You know, how do we get out into the, into the larger population of this message of, of enjoyable food? And you got to enjoy it. And I think the great untapped market, and it certainly can help, you know, local food producers and local food chefs, are in, is institutional buying. Schools, prisons, universities, hospitals, the armed forces, these uh, institutions account for a lot of America's annual grocery tab, and I think it would be cheaper, it would be more energy efficient and more nutritious uh, if they started to live off the, the fat of their, lo the, their local land. So that's one place where voting with the pocketbook, uh, you know, of, of economical local buying, I think. And there's some examples of that already. For, certainly uh, are. And it's all done under the name of procurement. That's the sort of lingo yes. people use for that. And I think New York City really took the lead in this when yes. the health department made specific nutrition standards for, for all uh, foods that were being served by the city. And there turned out to be a lot. If you count in the city hospitals, the city schools, the prisons, all these sort of places, it really was enormous clout the city had in that, that food system in that one geographic area. And the federal government's beginning to talk about this as well. But you could imagine if they stepped in that they could well, make a big difference. I mean, that's the other part of the question. I think it's the, the, the harder one uh, is legislatively what can be done. Mm -hmm. There are enormous uh, financial interests behind the current, you know, the profit from the current food system. They're, they're not evil. They're not, you know, all, all Hitler. They happen to be in an economic system that generates huge profits from the way thing from the status quo. And money buys politicians and money buys politics. That's where I'd say a little bit of uh, 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 faults of character. Well, maybe that's just human nature as well. Uh, but 
that that will take more to overcome. There are, you know, the food lobbies, the sugar lobby, the grain lobby, uh, the meat, you know, meat lobby. Uh, they are very powerful. They are very wealthy, and they back their friends. So, I think the two ways that you know so, some social policy will be changed is from the ground up by more people being exposed to better food and demanding it, and then, sad to say, but the occasional. Salmonella, you know, eruption, uh, uh, you know, serves to show us that our food safety system uh, is optimized for moving product to shelves uh, and not for nourishing people. So, as a as a final question, Peter, as you pull, pull out your crystal ball, are you optimistic about the way things are moving? Huh. Well, you know, in, in the world around, in my little world around me, yes. Uh, in the big world, it's, it, you know, it's so, it, I don't know. One can't predict history. We've seen really good things happen in the last 30 or 40 years that I wouldn't have predicted. I thought we'd all be eating ketchup and cottage cheese after, you know, a few administrations. So th- things have changed, but, you know, there's a, there are entrenched interests um, who profit from the way things are, and they're resistant to change. I think, like, like sporting events or a concert, you just have to see how it plays out, you know, in the doing, in the playing. Well, it's nice to hear your projections of that. I guess my own personal, if I can interject a little bit of that, I'm pretty optimistic about things changing. If you look back just a few years, not mere, nearly as this many people were concerned about organic, local sustainability. Most people wouldn't even looked at the word sustainability in the context of food. They would have only thought it was about energy use and things. Um, the the popularity of, of authors, you know, you're an example. Uh, Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, others who have written about these things, I think, is a they're all signs. I think of very positive movement. So, hopefully, these things will have a momentum that will build quickly in with time. There will be some tipping point that gets reached. Enough people in the population will demand better food, and that will create change. There will be more pressure on the industry to behave in better ways. And hopefully these things then will give government the courage to move and do things that will facilitate the, the progress even more. I, so that's the optimist in me speaking. But you're right. There are a lot of forces pushing in the other And, and it, I, I don't mean to say I think it's impossible. There have been changes. There, there, there are movements. But, you know, we're talking about tectonic plates here. It's going to take a lot of energy. That's but, true. But that's it's true. also good food can really motivate you. Well, and you're contributing to that understanding and, and appreciation of good food and people in very important ways. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So our guest was Peter Kaminsky, well-known author. Uh, he's written for the New York Times, for New York Magazine, a variety of other publications, and has a, a number of books out on food and food-related issues. Uh, most notably, those book Pig Perfect, Encounters with Remarkable Swine, and his forthcoming book called Culinary Intelligence. And while I don't know much about it, what I do know makes it sound absolutely fascinating. So I'll be first in line to buy it. So thank you again. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources, uh, including a free email newsletter on food and food policy issues, a variety of resources on uh, hot topics regarding food and food policy, and, of course, a list of our podcast visitors. Thank you.